0: His idea is that Robert and others sent over from Beijing can pose as farmers, drive around the Midwest looking for seeds, in some cases actually dig them out of the ground. In other cases, they would try to send them back to China in microwave popcorn bags and (laughs) (laughs) that, that this way the company could get the IP that it needs to produce next generation seeds it's not so much that the Chinese government says, here, go out, go forth and spy, take this technology, bring it back to us, and then we'll pass it on to the company. Instead, it's that companies like DBN know that there will be few repercussions if they do manage to steal the technology. And so sometimes they decide on their own. Sometimes there are individuals who themselves decide to steal something or pocket a few documents and then look for buyers after the fact. Hello and welcome to China Talk. I'm your
1: host, Jordan Schneider. What do you get when you take a Chinese national, a rental car, rural Iowa, and a $52 billion seed business? Said one review, not since Alfred Hitchcock's North by Northwest has a cornfield produced so much excitement. Mara Vistendahl's recent book, The Scientist and the Spy, presents a compelling narrative diving deep into the nature of Chinese industrial espionage and America's response. Mara, welcome to China Talk.
0: Thanks for having me on the show.
1: So as a longtime science journalist based in China, I can't but ask you if you have any insights that haven't been gleaned from Twitter over the past few days about um, what's happening with COVID-19. To be clear, we're recording this on March 9th.
0: Yes, um so I covered the H7N9 outbreak when it happened in 2013. I did um visit a biosafety level 3 facility. I guess the main thing is that there's been a lot of suspicion about the uh, the Chinese government's reaction. I think some of it's very warranted, but to keep in mind that there are many good researchers who are working as you know fast as they can to pass samples to their colleagues overseas, that's gotten a little... The other thing would be, don't be an armchair epidemiologist. I've seen a lot of those in the past few weeks. <laughs> Who do you think does it better, Chinese armchair epidemiologists or Americans? <laughs> At first, it was just journalists covering China, and now it's just everybody.
1: Maybe just thinking back to your, your, your time based in Shanghai, are there any kind of encouraging China science stories that, that stick out in your head?
0: So... I spent eight years in China altogether and three of them were with science. And during that time, I I followed a number of researchers into the field. I went on archaeological digs. I went with a paleobotanist to a former coal mine in northwestern China and went digging for fossils there. And, you know, there are a lot of very good researchers who are doing their best under the circumstances in China. Um, Because of the lack of academic freedom and because of the turn that things have taken under Xi Jinping, there are also, there are a number of scandals.
1: What scandal most stuck out to you that was most illustrative?
0: So when I was working for science, I did this Five-month investigation on a big paper-selling ring, and what that entailed was that researchers they would get the you know, provisional acceptance of their paper, and then once it was sent out for review, they would add a few co-authors and sell slots on the paper. What that meant was that they're basically gaming the academic journal publication process. There are agencies that are dedicated to selling these slots on papers. Oh, boy. You know, it was a big story when it came out because previously it was known that you could just buy a paper if you wanted. But the fact that people were also selling slots on papers that had already um, gone through some part of the review process was was pretty explosive. There's so much emphasis placed on... um, Publishing at all costs. It is really a publisher parish environment, um, to some degree, much more than in the West, which is already quite bad. And so, you know, researchers really have to secure publications. Um, and for some people, for example, doctors or people working in biomedical field, where they they might also have a um, practice on the side, they just don't have time to do that research.
1: Well, um, had the American tenure system been a little more forgiving to our main character, we may not have had this wonderful book to read. Mara, let's start out by talking a little bit about Robert Mo. So, who is he, and how did he first come to the U.S.?
0: Robert Mo was an engineer from Sichuan Province who moved to the United States in the 1990s. You know, at a time when many um, Chinese researchers and students were moving to the U.S. Um, He got his second Ph.D. in the U.S. in um, the field of thermodynamics and then went looking for a job, had trouble finding one. And so he ended up getting this position through nepotism with a Beijing agricultural company called Da or DBN. His sister was married to the CEO. And so even though he knew nothing about agriculture, they gave him a job.
1: Let's take a step back. So, Mara, are all seeds the same?
0: No, all seeds are not created equal. Many of the seeds that that are produced by U.S. companies and some of the leading global companies are top notch. Um, they get really high yields, um, and they're highly sought after.
1: And so this is a significant expense that farmers take on is like buying seeds every year.
0: Farmers pay a lot for seeds, um, the companies also pay a fair amount to develop new seeds, um, but actually as the industry consolidates, they're spending less and less on research.
1: Mm-hmm. At the time of your book's focus, which is the early 2010s, who were the leaders in this industry?
0: In the West, you had just a handful of big seed companies at the time. Um, two of the biggest were Monsanto and DuPont Pioneer, which make top-of-the-line genetically modified seeds that go into everything from ethanol to food to animal feed
1: so how has chinese industrial policy tried to uh, catch up to the success that the western seed manufacturers have been able to accomplish over the past few decades
0: improving the quality of a seed in china has been a major priority for the chinese government because they see that people are um, eating diets richer in meat And China's population is still growing, and China has relatively little arable land. And so China's had to look to other markets to source corn. Um, The shortcut would be for companies to come up with this high-quality seed themselves. But um, this Chinese seed industry is very fractured, and companies like DBN are really no competition for the likes of Monsanto and DuPont Pioneer.
1: So interestingly, the, the types of seeds that Western producers make are, made, are mainly GMO ones, which are banned in China for some reason?
0: Yes. Basically, the government has held off on commercializing GM corn, and it's expected that it will be allowed eventually. Um, but for now, companies are just kind of biding their time and hoping that one day they will be able to sell it in China. So I can't imagine
1: the motivation is quite the same as um, people protesting in in London and Paris about the purity of their food.
0: Actually, protests have played a big role in it, and it's really? kind of yes, yeah. Um, for many Chinese people, um, the debate over GM crops has come up at a time when there have been a lot of food safety scandals in China, and um, organizations like Greenpeace, which is very active in China, have managed to conflate the two. And, you know, for people who have very reasonable fears about the quality of food that they're eating based on, you know, everything they've experienced over the past 10 years, uh, they're reluctant to accept um, GM foods. But that may change.
1: So, but there's also a a, a dynamic of protectionism going on here, potentially. Oh,
0: definitely. So looking back to 2011, when my book started... It was also possible at the time that the Chinese government was just biding its time until a Chinese company had a good stock of genetically modified seeds and that then they would legalize them and allow companies to sell them.
1: Coming back to Robert Moa, he he has this job, he's trying to do some business deals, but um, very quickly he starts getting pressure from from up top to engage in a little more nefarious activity.
0: That's right. So not that long after he joins DBN, his boss in China, a guy named Dr. Li, comes up with this elaborate scheme to steal seeds from Monsanto and, du- and DuPont Pioneer. His idea is that Robert and others sent over from Beijing can like pose as farmers, drive around the Midwest looking for seeds, um, in some cases actually dig them out of the ground. Um, in other cases, they would s- try to send them back to China in microwave popcorn bags, and <laughs> <laughs> that that this way the company could get the IP that it needs to produce next generation seeds.
1: So this ends up leading to Robert and his boss driving around in rental cars to you know the ruralest of rural Iowa, um, which does not have a ton of Asian Americans driving around, does it?
0: not in corn country.
1: So what was his reception like?
0: Well, initially Robert kind of enjoyed it. You know, he at that point had lived in the U S for many years. He has a wife and kids in Florida. He in many ways feels American and you know, (laughs) I I spent quite a long time talking with him and he told me he visited the bridges of Madison County. He went to all these tourist sites. He loved the small towns with their little restaurants and their bars that have these neon lights that just say bar. And so initially he was really enjoying this this assignment. Um, But then as it veered into more and more illegal activity, he grew um, uneasy with what he was being tasked with doing.
1: And within a fairly short period of time, he starts attracting some police attention.
0: Yes. The book starts in Bondurant, Iowa, where Robert and a colleague are found near a Monsanto cornfield. This was a field where the company was growing next generation hybrid seed. The um, Which is not a- an
1: easy thing to know.
0: No, you know. Locals know it, but the company tries to protect those fields as trade secrets. Um, they you know, most most cornfields in the area, if they're growing commercial corn that's gonna be sent out to harvest, they'll have these little signs along the side that say the the breed of corn that's growing there, and this field is unmarked. Okay. But for people who live in the area, you know, you just need to watch for the Monsanto truck coming by um, a few times a season, and you know that it's a Monsanto field.
1: Sure. I guess my question at this point of, of the book was was whether or not the the you're, you were sort of insinuating that they were potentially inside of the Monsanto email registry, because I can't imagine the Dabenong deep connections in the rural Iowa uh, farmer mm. crew to sort of know the gossip of who is getting the fancy fancy seed.
0: So very quickly, the FBI catches on to their appearance in this field. And one operating theory is that somebody has tipped them off to the location of this field. Sure. But that never was borne out, as far as I know.
1: So how did the police first get involved in this case?
0: So the Monsanto field is... Owned by a local farmer. He grows the corn under contract with Monsanto. And the company is so secretive about what's growing there that the seed just arrives in these unmarked bags every year. He's not told what kind of seed he's growing. Um, and, you know, for all intents and purposes, it's the company's project. But he notices Robert's colleague standing in the middle of his cornfield um, with his head down, scanning the ground for. Years of corn, and so he calls the police. His his wife is a police officer one town over. Um, some sheriff's deputies then race to the scene and question the question Robert and and his colleague, um, and then kind of let them off with a warning because you know they couldn't f- discern any illegal activity maybe beyond trespassing. Um, But one sheriff's deputy who showed up that day wrote up a report on the incident just in case. So the FBI had recently been tipped off to a similar incident in a pioneer field in another part of Iowa. And so when the FBI agent who is working that case hears of this Monsanto incident, suddenly you have two suspicious incidents involving cornfields and he he and an analyst and others in the office start asking around there's a fantastic
1: irony in your book where um you talk to a number of of scientists who say actually they only really needed to do this trip once but the fact that Robert's boss didn't really have an understanding a of the sort of risks involved and b um of the actual science that it um that it took you know getting 500 different samples doesn't necessarily get you any faster to the cutting edge as just having one or two you can study from.
0: So that was part of what drew me to this case, because it was such a harebrained scheme. And the more I talked with farmers and seed breeders and so forth, I realized that a lot of it was actually unnecessary. Um, But then the FBI's reaction was also very outsized. So you had this Protracted cat and mouse chase that went on for over two years.
1: Yeah, you know, there's this, there's this, there's this narrative in the media that these Chinese firms are so sophisticated, and they're really, you know, they're they're stealing hundreds of billions of dollars of intellectual property. Mm -hmm. Um, But you know, these are B-rate firms. Um, and, you know, it, it's funny because even with a, with, a, with a company like Huawei, who you figure is like the best in the world at this, they end up copying typos from routers. Um, so mm-hmm. once you go a little further down the, um, the, you know, the industrial food chain, it, it sort of makes sense that, okay, if this is a norm, um, there are going to be people who are like really poor um, at actually executing this sort of espionage.
0: Yeah. One of the things that I think is most telling about the Huawei case is that when Meng Wanzhou was arrested in Vancouver, she had several Apple devices on her. (laughs) So um, that shows the degree of faith in the company's technology. Maybe she just didn't want the government spying on one or two of her phones. That's Yeah, maybe. Um, You know, there are companies that are very good at this. And um, there have been sophisticated cyber attacks. There have also been more bungled kind of low end operations by hustlers, basically. And, and so that's one of the popular misconceptions about these cases is that in the most, for the most part with technologies like corn seed and um, non-dual use technologies It's not so much that the Chinese government says, here, go out, go forth and spy, take this technology, bring it back to us, and then we'll pass it on to the company. Um, Instead, it's that companies like DBN know that there will be few repercussions if they do manage to steal the technology. And so sometimes they decide on their own. Sometimes there are individuals who themselves decide to steal something or um, pocket a few documents and then look for buyers after the fact so sure. all of these things going are going on at the same time and there isn't one typical case
1: have you read uh, for all the tea in china mara
0: yes yes i i, I read that when i was researching this book
1: My favorite Chinese industrial espionage story is actually one committed by the British East India Company. So after the opium war, when China just starts opening up a tad, this British civil servant type dresses up in Mandarin garb and ends up Persuading ten or fifteen tea experts to go to India to teach the sorry Indian tea farmers how to step up their game and make um, internationally palatable product, and and she has this fascinating story because there's this guy and he's like sneaking around and and, mm-hmm. and all the local mandarins try to arrest him and he like gets away in the dead of night. I think one of the um, uh, things that you mentioned in your book is this is this is something that's been going on for um, for a long time and and the history isn't always necessarily of um, Western companies and countries having their hands completely clean when it comes to these sorts of issues.
0: That's right. And the CCP messaging, I guess I should say, has gotten a little bit more sophisticated. But Deng Xiaoping, for example, you know, once said, did we charge the West for the printing press and for gunpowder and, <laughs> and for all these other inventions? I mean... That's true. At the same time, it has gotten a lot easier to steal technologies. And it's clearly happening on a very widespread scale.
1: Um, I, I might take an issue. I might take an issue with that, that statement. Cause on the one hand, like, yeah, okay. I guess you can like hack someone's computer and download all this stuff. But uh, on the other hand, you can argue the Americans. I think, I think you mentioned this in your book. The, the Americans have uh, had a story where Alexander Hamilton was subsidizing people who would steal schematics, um, mm-hmm. from the UK of mills uh, or something. And it doesn't take, you know, once you have the schematics, you can just like give it to like your carpenter around the corner and he can Build your watermill, right? Um, but this is very different. The the sort of. Okay, so say you steal a uh, you know a hybrid seed, right? The amount of sort of like institutional knowledge and support and education, an entire system, in order to operationalize the stuff that you're stealing in 2020 is very different. Um, sort of industrial espionage, which was much lower tech because like the world was lower tech a um, hundred or two hundred years ago.
0: That's true, and and there is a de- real debate among um, scholars and others who study this issue. About how effective it is to steal these technologies, it, sure. it's pretty clear that it's a it's a short term strategy, and that companies like DBN are not really thinking forward, maybe even ten years, let alone like twenty or thirty years. Um, you know, they're they're looking at like if we get this seed line, we can commercialize it within two to three years and beat out our competitors. Um, the, the the chinese economy is an environment that does encourage short-term thinking right now sure. in the long in the long run will that undercut the united states technological edge that I mean, that is an issue of debate
1: um the fbi when and why do they start caring about these sorts of industrial espionage cases
0: economic espionage became a crime in the mid 1990s amid a soul-searching brought on by the end of the Cold War. After the Cold War was over, we lost our major adversary. There was a kind of casting about for a new focus within the intelligence agencies. And at the same time, you had former agents around the world going to work for corporations and um, be going into corporate security. There was a lot of concern about, about France in particular, um, there was this, there's a story that the French intelligence services had bugged the first class cabins on Air France flights and were somehow <laughs> gleaning information um, out of that. Yeah, it's it's question like questionable how much they actually got. So but, this is why the Concorde really got shut down? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, so that that was one of the big concerns at the time, and economic espionage became a crime in 1996 when the when President Clinton signed the Economic Espionage Act into law. Um, but then 9/11 happened; our focus shifted to terrorism and counterterrorism, and it wasn't really until the late '00s that we began pursuing industrial espionage cases in earnest. And that's when you saw the FBI create a dedicated unit, um, an economic espionage unit, fighting this sort of technology theft from China is now one of their top priorities. And, um, over the past few years, especially, there's just been a rapid uptake in ca- uptick in cases, to the point where FBI Director Christopher Ray says that there are now over a thousand active investigations involving China and technology.
1: Jeez. So... Um- an interesting dynamic that you really brought to the floor is the public-private sector cooperation, I guess, is the nice spin, or the FBI becoming operationalized to benefit corporate interests, which is the more cynical one. So how is this cooperation supposed to work ideally between the FBIs and the firms who are getting their stuff stolen, and how can it run awry?
0: So in the early 1990s, there was this debate over whether the United States should actively spy for economic secrets and for the gain of our companies. There were many people who felt that this would actually be a good idea because the French were doing it, the Israelis were doing it, and, you know, why not just get into the game? Um, There were others who felt like we don't need to, it would be very complicated to do so, but we should criminalize economic theft when it happens. So that's that's what we ultimately ended up doing. Um, so our stance now is that we spy for national security purposes like every other country, um, but we do not spy for the purposes of our own corporations' gain. That is the U.S. Yep. government's stance.
1: I feel like Trump would be sort of down with this. I remember he was um, at one point pushing the U.S. to end the, the anti-bribery laws.
0: Peter Navarro, his, his – um, trade advisor of, of dubious qualifications, recently wrote an article saying that economic security is national security. And, and so that's something that the uh, Trump administration has been pushing harder.
1: So, you know, in interacting with these FBI agents, um, you know, this isn't like the sexiest of things to be investigating i'm sure you know when they were when they were all teenagers dreaming of being um you know g-men this this wasn't this is necessarily the you know the sorts of stories that they wanted to be you know in the news for so i'm curious like like it, are, are you kind of lame if you're on the economic espionage desk or is it now a cool thing to do what, what was your sense of like the sort of like <laughs> emotional reaction that these fbi agents had to um you know, to, to to helping like very large, um, pretty multinational companies at this point um, protect their intellectual property.
0: Well, I should say I spend quite a bit of time um, talking with the lead FBI agent on this case and talking with others in the FBI. Interviewing current FBI agents can be a little bit like interviewing a wall. Like, you know, they are trained to not give sure. a lot of information, <laughs> um, but my sense is that this has become such a priority that even if you're working something like the theft of hybrid corn seed you know that it could be a big case yeah just because there's so much emphasis on it and so you know on on its face it's really not a sexy topic at all but it 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 is one that 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 really has the eyes and ears of leadership and so I would assume that there is a draw in that.
1: So so again, Maher, coming back to the, the sort of cooperation with companies angle?
0: Yes. So to bring these cases, the FBI works very closely with corporations. And the argument is that companies would not come forward with breaches unless they're you know, quite confident that their trade secrets are going to be protected and so forth. The risk in this cooperation is that Companies' claims about their technologies can go unquestioned. And so, especially with cases involving China, you have this trifecta of difficult issues. You have complex technologies, like even something like corn breeding requires a lot of background and a lot of learning about the technology. Um, China, also very complicated in terms of governance structure and figuring out you know, w- w- whether a company has strong connections to the government and so forth. And then IP law, which is also very complex. And there's a complicated calculation that goes into, like, is something a trade secret or is it not a trade secret? And so you have agents in places like Iowa, Missouri, really every state in the country who are now tasked with investigating these very difficult cases that involve these very complex topics.
1: Yeah, no. This is a dynamic I think that, that is is really across the government, where there's only really so much expertise, and the people who know the most about it are the ones you know, in the private sector. I remember the the famous case. There was like this fast, this fantastic New Yorker article about this, you know, high frequency trader, and sort of Goldman Sachs basically like persuaded persuaded the Department of Justice that this guy was a criminal. But there, there, you know, there was this whole uh, ten thousand word piece about you know, raising questions as to whether or not th- it was, um, and it, it sort of came out ambiguous. But I think that the, the clearest takeaway was that, in fact, the government lawyers had very little sense of what was actually going on in the business, which may or may not have been a crime.
0: Sure. So, so for example, to go back to the case of Robert Moore, the the case that's in my book, at one point, the lead agent on the case cites the fact that, he's, that Robert is speaking Chinese with um, with a woman in the industry as a basis for getting a warrant among other factors. Um, so, you know, things like that, it's very common for two ethnic Chinese people to speak Mandarin with each other. And, and yet we still see this, um, this idea cropping up in, in warrants and in government arguments as a, like, this is a basis for suspicion. Sure. So, um,
1: so this brings us to this broader tension that the U.S. government is facing, where on the one hand, you know, there is this real threat of both corporate and military espionage from the Chinese government. But at the same time, there are big downsides, both uh, moral and strategic, from uh, painting everyone with an Asian ethnic background as a potential or active foreign agent. So um, maybe to kick off this part of the discussion, you want to start by uh, describing this uh, idea of the CCP strategy of a thousand grand. Of sand and how it took hold in the US imagination?
0: Sure. So when I set out to tell the story of Robert Moore, I realized that I needed to understand the history of the way that the FBI has looked at these cases involving China in the past. Um, It's a fraught history. Many people have heard of the case of Wen Ho Lee, um, you know, the Los Alamos scientist who was a subject of a botched investigation in, in the late 1990s, and culminated in an apology from President Clinton. Um, so, you know, there was that. But then I I dug deeper, and um, one operating theory that the FBI used for years and still has some currency within some quarters. Um, was this notion that of a thousand grades of sand. And the idea behind that was that if intelligence collection were aimed at determining the composition of sand on a beach, that the United States and Russia would use sort of James Bond like tactics to go out and determine what, what sand was there, you know, so they might send agents in the middle of the night they might they might do reconnaissance whereas china would simply send thousands of people to the beach to lie in the sun and then at the end of the day they would take their towels home and shake out their towels and somehow all of this sand would be assembled into a a complete picture and china would end up with a lot of sand so that was the idea it's a theory that first of all struck me as as representing a very incomplete picture of the way the Chinese government operates. I mean it's it's a bureaucracy in the worst sense of the word <laughs> um, there, you know one um, so the idea that that this sort of sophisticated assembly of of pieces of information would work just seemed incorrect. Um, but then, this theory also harkens back to racist tropes dating back to the late 1800s. You know the idea of yellow peril, um, the notion that there were hordes overwhelming our borders. These are ideas that we haven't completely purged from analysis of China, and to some degree, continue to shape thinking on investigations. Um, but I should say that that the opinions of many analysts have shifted. Um, that theory is being discarded to some degree. and um, the the problem is that the one that's replaced it is much less catchy. it's It's basically the idea that China uses a whole range of tactics, and some of them look a lot more like what the United States and Russia do. Uh, traditional spying, and then some are more uniquely Chinese. uh, But that's not really a catchy metaphor that you can easily sell to the press or um, to others within the intelligence agencies.
1: Yeah. I mean, it, it, it makes sense. It's like if you are poor and you don't have highly trained James Bonds running around or, you know, a drone that can go and scoop up a piece of sand, then you're going to do whatever you can. Um, And, you know, as as, you know, the the, the line is like consumption upgrade in China, everyone's buying fancier cars mm-hmm. and getting, you know, organic milk and whatnot. Um, I, I'd imagine like espionage upgrade is also something that that happens once you have more resources to to put towards these, no, these issues. But,
0: you know, I don't think that that I don't think that that theory was ever correct. I think it says more about the way that we in the West conceptualize Chinese espionage than anything else. It says more about Western biases and assumptions and the way that you know, racism continues to shape our conception of China than it does anything else.
1: Sure. So maybe go a bit deeper into the idea that the CCP tries to weaponize um, ethnic Chinese from all around the world.
0: That idea is still one that you see people within the intelligence communities repeating. Um, It's very fraught. You know, there is a degree of truth to the fact that the CCP would like to weaponize people, but it would love to weaponize white people as well. So over the past few years, there have been a number of cases involving non-ethnic Chinese. And these are both national security and industrial espionage cases. Um, And so... Focusing on ethnicity, first of all, is wrong, but it second leads us astray. In that we could end up missing cases.
1: But to what extent do you do you feel these like somewhat racialized theories ended up impacting the investigation that you spent your time looking into?
0: I used this case of Robert Moore to tell a larger story, um, and. It happened at the same period as an, as a number of other investigations were brought. I mean, really dozens of cases over the period that that, they, that that case spanned. And so I structured the book by telling the story of that case and then wrapping some of these other cases around it. And there's no question that ethnicity played a role in many other cases. Um, in the case of Robert Moore, he... You know, clearly, did go into this into fields to take seed. The FBI had a lot of evidence of his intent, um, but at the same time, this issue was becoming so fraught nationally, and the language around the discussion around these cases, people were using metaphors of animals and um, a number of Asian American. Community groups were advocating around the issue and growingly, growing increasingly concerned. Uh, many Chinese researchers began to feel like they were being targeted, and so all of that did have an impact on the case. And it got to the point um, when his case, his case did not go to trial, but it, um, it the the pretrial um, proceedings dragged on for several years, and the. Judge in the case actually ruled that if it did go to trial, um, that his ethnicity would be off limits, and so you know the t- two sides would not be able to bring up his Chineseness um, unnecessarily. Yeah,
1: what would that what would that end up having meant?
0: I gather that it would have meant that, for example, the government could not have presented testimony on how pervasive Chinese industrial espionage is, for example. Um, that they could not have um, insinuated that that the case of Robert was tied to these other cases. Sure, and 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 I there was a real concern on the part of of um, the defense that a jury in a place like Iowa could be prejudiced against a defendant simply because he he who was ethnically Chinese. Sure.
1: So um, Robert ends up taking a um, a guilty plea, which will have him spending um, years in jail and then end up end up getting deported back to um, back to China. So Robert ends up pleading pleading guilty. And when he speaks to you, he very, um, very clearly thinks that this is a this is has everything to do with this, ethnicity.
0: Yes. I mean, he's not an extremely reliable narrator in the book. He's a very colorful sure. narrator. He speaks a metaphor he spent a long time talking me talking to me about his childhood about his poetry about you know when he in prison he ended up befriending a pretty well known um defendant in an economic espionage case so he you know he was in prison with these other well educated um, ethnic Chinese scientists, and they would play ping pong together and um, talk about Chinese history. And and so that was this like, strange reality that he inhabited. Um, he did come out of the whole experience somewhat jaded, understandably. And I think it did seem to me by the end of my reporting that to some degree, he was a little bit of a pawn in this global competition between the United States and China because he was ultimately a fairly low-level employee within DBN and the company itself suffered very few repercussions. So the um, the government was hoping to arrest the people above him. You know, they hoped to get his boss. Um, there were several other people who were... Charged, and those guys are now all still on the FBI's most wanted list. Um, at one point, they charged Robert's sister, and then the charges against her were dropped. They were they were somewhat specious, and um, so you know, despite. massive amounts of money that were spent on this investigation, um, the company continues to do just fine. Um, Its stock prices are high. It it may even have the sea vines that it stole in production. And so, you know, at the end of the day, um, one guy went to prison and... That's it. Hey, <laughs> Sorry, let uh, me uh, I mean, take away
1: from reading this is, however many you know millions of dollars would have that were that were spent to prosecute this case had they just been had they just gone into you know Iowa State scholarships for um, you know the future uh, seed engineers of America would probably have done more to protect and and support this um, this industry than all of this legal legal wrangling which ended up only getting a sad sack. Uh, low-level employee of a Chinese firm in jail.
0: Well, that's another issue. So when you look at at some of these industries, and the seed industry is really stark, um, there's been massive consolidation over the past few decades to the point where just a handful of companies now control the the bulk of the market. And so when you look at um, boosting innovation in America, breaking up Monopolies is one way to do that. I mean, the, as the companies have grown larger, they have spent less and less on research as a percentage of their sales. Um, the seed prices for farmers have risen, and the seed is not improved measurably or by the same degree. And and so that is a that is a significant issue as well. Um, the Justice Department under Obama, when when the Robert Mo Investigation started did actually have a um, an antitrust inquiry involving Monsanto, and that was dropped um, over the period that this investigation played out. Um, now there were several other antitrust inquiries involving other agricultural companies that were dropped over the same period, and these are fairly difficult to bring. But um, you know, at the end of the day, that would have had a real impact on. The livelihoods of farmers and consumers, um, to a degree, to which this IP theft investigation did not.
1: I also, I also like how at the at the end Monsanto gets acquired by Bayer, of course, of course a German company. So, um, you know, all this ends up doing is protect what turns out what ends up becoming German IP.
0: That's right, right. I mean, so that's the big irony of the of the book is that there, I mean, there is this argument made. Um, continually by the um, by the Justice Department that these investigations and these cases um, protect innovation in America um, but you know ultimately all of this money was spent on the case and then Monsanto left it left the the. US I mean it's, um, an, it's an it's it's an unequal playing field in a way because companies like Huawei are, Beholden to the Chinese government on some level, and you can deba- debate the degree to which they are, but you know clearly they are. And then company, and then multinationals in the United States really do not have the same allegiance to the U.S. government. And these investigations have been brought um, almost under the assumption that they that they do. Mm. So, 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 what do you think? What do you think is the right response then?
1: I know you're a journalist, not a not a not a not a think tanker. But if you have to put on, <laughs> yeah, if you we, had to put on this hat.
0: We just diagnose the problem and then leave it to other people to solve it. <laughs> we, um, well, one thing that we have to keep in mind is that the U.S. research force is comprised of many researchers from overseas, um, a large number of whom are from China, and so any solution has to ensure that we continue to make um, foreign-born scientists feel welcome.
1: So let's close on Charles Lieber, who, as NPR wrote, until late last month, lived the quiet life of an American elite scientist um, until the FBI came knocking on his door. So how does his story and taking of, you know, uh, relatively illicit Chinese money end up feeding into this whole dynamic?
0: So when I started looking at these cases, many of them involved corporate IP and um, the theft of corporate trade secrets. Over the past two years, uh, there has been a shift to cases involving grant fraud and particularly National Institutes of Health money. And that, those, those investigations involve the FBI working together with NIH, and um, they've played out at a number of universities. Charles Lieber is the biggest fish caught so far, um, I think the important thing to note about those cases is that in several cases, the FBI has gone in, investigated people closely, and then not brought any charges. And so that has created a lot of confusion. Um, In other cases, like the case of Charles Lieber, you have people who are charged with fraud or with lying to the U.S. government. And there's not any evidence that IP was actually stolen. And, you know, it's possible that it may have been in the case of Charles Lieber, who's working with a very sensitive technology, but all of these cases have, are being conflated. So you have the IP theft cases being conflated with the fraud cases, and much of what's happening with the FBI and NIH investigations is simply incidents of scientists double-dipping or accepting money from China at the same time that they are working for a US institution. And that is not espionage. It's it's often conflated in the headlines. And I wish that people would get it straight. <laughs> Mara, any
1: sort of like interesting responses since since
0: publishing the book from from
1: from the US or or from mainland readers?
0: You know, there are a number of People within the US intelligence community who still want to debate whether Wen Lee was guilty. And so I've heard from a number of those people. <laughs> um <laughs> yeah, you know, it's interesting. I think ultimately he did not get a fair investigation. And and so we can debate it all we want, but I think we probably would do best to learn from that and move forward and and ensure that future people do get further investigations.
1: Mara, thanks so much for being a part of Chinatown. Thanks again for having me on the show.